Lord, we love you, and we sing our songs of love to you knowing that you first loved us. And you demonstrated your love for us in that while we were yet sinners, you sent forth your Son to give his life and his love for each and every one of us. Lord, for this we give you thanks. Lord, this would be enough. But Lord, we are also grateful that this is not all that you have done and that you do for us, your children. We thank you for all the gifts that come at your table. We thank you for life with you. And Lord, we know that you have called us to bear witness to this life as we walk through this world. And Lord, we pray for the strength of your spirit as we live and as we love our neighbors as ourselves, Lord, we pray today as we gather again that you would stir us, that you would correct us, that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us for the living of these days. Lord, we thank you for all the rich gifts that come in worship. Lord, not least, obviously, is your word. We thank you, God, that you speak to us, your children. We pray, Lord, that we would hear and that we would respond for your namesake and your glory. Now, Lord, we pray for those who are with us today in this place that are our guests that don't yet know you. Lord, I pray that you would speak to their hearts as well. We know, we are confident that you love them and that you're at work in their lives. Draw them to yourself. We pray in the strong name of Jesus, saying together, amen, amen. Friends, please be seated. We continue this week with our message series, Praying with Paul. Last week we looked at, at the God that Paul was praying to, the, the person of God. And this week we are focusing in on a pattern for prayer. Our focal text is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We begin in verse 16 here in just a few minutes. So I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a pew near you. Uh, we encourage you to steal that today. Uh, just take it home. We'll replace it. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16. I love to hear those pages turn. That's a nice sound. You're slow, though. <laughs> Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. Brethren, brothers, sisters, pray 
for us. I think as we read these, these words, probably the little phrase that jumps out off the page, the one we have to deal with first, is this little imperative to pray without ceasing. Have you ever pondered over this one? Have you ever wondered about this one? Uh, years as a pastor, I can't tell you how many times someone has come to me and said, Matt, I was reading the Bible this week, and I was in 1 Thessalonians. I come to the end, and it says to pray without ceasing. How on earth do I do that? I go to work. I work 50 hours a week. I go to HEB. That takes another 20. Uh, I got kids. I got going to and fro. Am I to like quit life, go move up on top of a mountain, join a monastery, join a convent? Am I to put away the grandkids? Am I to quit coaching t-ball? How on earth am I to pray without ceasing? It seems like a heroic task, and I don't think I'm up for that. Years ago in England, there was a, a, a plumber preacher named Smith Wigglesworth, and, and he was part of the Welsh Revival and all this and that and the other, and, and he was sort of known as a, as a giant of prayer. And one day, a group of uh, older ladies went to him because they knew he was heroic. You know, he, he was a, a prayer hero, and they wanted to know how he was able to, to fulfill what the Scripture called him to do, to pray without ceasing when he looked like such a busy man. They said, how, how long? They went to him, and they said, excuse me, how long do you pray? When you come before God, how long do you pray? They were expecting, you know, I get up at one in the morning and I pray for six hours before I eat uh, my eggs. And, and then, I, I, then I, after my eggs, I pray another six hours. And, I, and I, that's basically what my life is about. They were expecting that kind of heroic answer. And he said, gentle ladies, I rarely pray longer than 30 minutes at a time. And they went, <gasps> they were aghast. They thought, hey, he's a slacker. We do better than that. He's, he's supposed to be a hero, and he's a slacker. And then he says, but rarely do I go 30 minutes without praying. He offered them a little bit of a, of a secret. He offered them a little gateway into a life of vibrant prayer, and that's to live a life that is, that's in a conversation with God, to develop a conversational relationship with God. Uh, I love the language of the Old Testament. As you go, teach your children. As you leave the house, as you go along the way, and that's our life of prayer too, to develop a conversational relationship with God. And one of the keys to living a life where we are connected with God in a vital way in, in, the, in the nuts and bolts of living is to recognize that there are more things that we do in prayer than, than the ways we prayed as children before we went to sleep or before we ate our chicken nuggets. When we were little, we just developed some patterns. God bless mama and daddy and my puppy dogs and help us have a good day tomorrow. And we developed some muscle memory for prayer. And we think of prayer in just a very narrow category sometimes. Uh, and we don't grow past that. But to recognize that there are, there are ingredients that we put together to have a whole prayer life is important to develop a pattern for prayer. Some of you learn the acrostic acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. That's a helpful one. Today, I give you three. They all start with R uh, because some of you like alliterated messages, right? Uh, I, I don't particularly like them, but you always love them. Whenever I do it, you always brag about it. So, so this is for you. So here's a pattern for prayer that you can jot down. I, I borrowed it from others, lots of others, so I don't even have to give citation. One, rejoice, repent, request. You see, all of these things uh, in this section of Scripture, rejoice, repent, 
request. Let's start with the first one, rejoice. The scripture here calls us to rejoice always. To pray without ceasing, to rejoice always, to live a life of rejoicing, develop a life, a pattern of rejoicing in the living of our days. What does it mean to rejoice? To rejoice is to return to the source of our joy. You remember Faulkner's line, the getting place? Where'd you get that quarter? I got it at the getting place. Well, the getting place of joy is the spirit of the living God. The getting place of joy is God himself. Recall the testimony of the conversion of the Christians at Thessalonica. We talked about this last week. It said in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, that they received the word in much affliction. It wasn't easy for them. People weren't clapping for them when they began to follow Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. Immediately, they were in a pressure cooker because of their confession and because of their conversion and because of their commitment to Jesus. They received the word in much affliction. Some of you possibly received the word of life in much affliction. It, it might have cut across what the people nearest and dearest to you thought meant uh, an important life. I've heard enough testimonies from the people in this room. I can't assume everybody was clapped for when they started following Jesus. For some of us, it was quite opposite. They baked cakes, and they invited cousins, and they had parties, and everybody celebrated. And that's a beautiful thing, too. But this church, they didn't have the cakes, and they didn't have the parties. They had God, and they had one another. They had the hope, and they had the gospel. They received the word in much affliction, comma, comma. And we keep reading, and it says, with joy in the Holy Spirit. You see, when, when their circumstances could not provide it, God showed up, and God was there. And writ large, with a sharp point, was the fact that God himself would be the source of their joy henceforth and forevermore. And so at the end of this letter, Paul is writing to them about something that they understand. They understood it from day one, that joy comes from the Spirit of God, that, that joy rains down more than grain and wine, like we just sang, that God is the source of our joy. So the question is, how do we create space in our life how do we, we create the room in our life for the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead to enter into our experience on an ongoing, regular basis to provide for us the joy that Jesus knew that he experienced and the joy that God would have for all of us? Well, I think it is a matter of both perspective and practice. It's a matter of the mind and the mouth and that's why rejoicing and giving thanks is part of a pattern for prayer uh, for a follower of Jesus Christ. It's a matter of the mind. That's where the battle begins, a matter of perspective. As Christians, as we pray, as we come before God, we are to look in a number of different directions. We're, for instance, to look back. We're to look back at the cross and the empty tomb. And the work of God in our life to draw us to himself, we're to look back at our story, how our story intersected with God's story. I love the language of Revelation. They overcame him 
by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And we have a story, and it's an overcoming, powerful story of what God has done to reconcile us to himself and to breathe life into us when we were lifeless because of our rebellion and our sin. Friends, as we rejoice, as we go back to the getting place, we've got to go back to that place where we met the Lord. For me, it was a process. For some of you, it was instantaneous. But there was this season of, of life where, where we, we blossomed in grace and faith. People, as we rejoice in prayer, that's where we go first. We look back. But that's not the end of it because as Christians we're called to look around, to, to see what's going on around us and to attend to signs of grace in our present reality. This takes discipline and this takes some, some creativity, but God will show us those places where we have been touched by his current near presence. You say, man, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know how hard my life is. I don't see a, a, a touch of God anywhere in my life. I believe this season of my life is literally God forsaken. Now, a lot of us have been in those seasons of life where we feel that way, but it is not the truth because God has promised never to leave you nor to forsake you. And God will give us eyes to see those, those, those droplets of grace in our present moment. I'll never forget, years ago I was reading a book by Sam Storms titled The Singing God. There was a chapter in that book titled The Singing God, uh, titled Singing in the Cesspool. And Storms was telling about a friend of his who was a Chinese pastor uh, for, for a number of years. And early in his life, during a season of great pressure and persecution, this Chinese pastor was put in prison. And because of his commitment to Jesus and because of the atheism of his captors, he was singled out for harassment. And they gave him the worst possible job in that prison, which was attending to the cesspool. Day after day, they would take him out there drop him off, go back, later in the day, come back, pick him up, make sure he had done his job correctly. Day after day, his heart was broken. Day after day, he felt forsaken. Day after day, he struggled through until he began to attend to signs of grace around him. And he, and he recognized that, that when he was out there, he had a, he had a, a lighter spirit. He, he recognized that his anxiety was dropping because his captors didn't want to be near that cesspool. So instead of standing over him and harassing him, they'd drop him off and leave him alone. And there he had moments of solitude, solitude that he'd craved for a long, long time. And he recognized that when he was out there, he could lift his voice and he could, he could shout his prayers of joy and frustration to God. He could, he could preach sermons to the sky. He could recite scripture. He could sing. And he decided to sing in the cesspool. And he said, after a while, he began to sing, in that cesspool, I come to the garden alone, where the dew is still on the roses. Only a God of grace can turn a cesspool into a garden filled with roses. Only a God of grace. We are to rejoice always, to look around us, to attend to the signs of grace that are present 
to see how the God who's promised never to leave us or forsake us is whispering his presence with us as we go along. And we're to look ahead. We're to be people who have a vision for the future, God's good future that he has prepared for all of his people. Jesus prayed like this. There's this wild line in Hebrews chapter 12. It said that that he went to the cross scorning at shame. Why? Do you remember? For the joy set before him. Matt Homer and I are about to lead a a study on Wednesday nights about praying with Jesus. And and I'm amazed at the way Jesus prayed from the book of Psalms. In fact, on the day of his crucifixion, Jesus was praying from the book of Psalms. You know the 23rd Psalm? Do you know the 22nd? Do you know the 22nd? It begins like this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning. Jesus spoke those words on the cross. Jesus was calling out the hymn number. He was calling everyone there to think about this, this psalm that they had prayed for many years throughout their life, a psalm that he had prayed through many years for his life. He was calling them to the scene of that psalm because as you continue to sing it, as you continue to pray it, you get to these words in verse 27. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. Wow. The joy set before him. The cry of dereliction turned into a defiant cry that the nations of the world would come and worship our God and the King. The joy set before him. As you read the prayers of Paul, as you read the writings of Paul, you recognize that he has an eternal perspective. He sees the picture to the end. He prays that we be sanctified for the coming of the Lord. He has the hope of God's victory clearly in his sight. And this hope gives us strength, and it gives us joy. D.A. Carson wrote a wonderful little book. I agree with most of it. Uh, Some of it, you know, you eat the meat and throw away the bones, right? Um, But in this book, there's this great perspective on prayer from Paul, and he tells a story about a woman named Florence Chadwick in 1952. She was going to swim from Catalina Island to to the California mainland. So she gets out, and she goes to swim. It's a foggy day, uh, and they're behind her in a boat, and they're saying, you're not far away, just keep going. And she quits a half mile before she gets to the shore. She said, if I just could have seen the shore, I'd have made it. To prove that, not long afterwards, she went back and she did it on a Sunday day all the way in. You see, God has given us a picture of our end. It's not full, it's not complete, it'll blow our mind if it was, but enough picture uh, where we're gathered with God. Enough picture to put steel in our spine and joy in our heart to keep us going. It's perspective and it's practice. We look back and look around and look ahead and our mind is set right, then the things that come out of our mouth will be thanksgiving unto God. We're to rejoice. That's number one. Number two, we are to repent. Scripture says, do not quench the Holy Spirit. The language here is is to snuff out a fire. One of my great heroes is my grandmother. I talked to her uh, yesterday. She's 93 years old. I said, how you doing? She says, not bad for an ancient person. Uh, 
She's a tough old girl. Uh, when I was a kid, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother, and one of the most sort of uh, wonderful things about her is she let me do dangerous things. Uh, one time she was trading out her steak knives, so she put a, a two-by-four and, and some plywood out against the fence and let me learn how to throw knives. And uh, when we bent up all her steak knives, she went and got my grandfather's hatchets and chisels. And uh, so, really, this old woman did this. Uh, but, but most of the time, the dangerous things we did revolved around fire uh, and, and quenching and starting fires. Uh, she started baby-stepped it, and she would go through the house, light all the candles, and she'd bring out her collection of snuffers. She had the, the old-fashioned kind where you sort of daintily put out the fire. She had the kind of look like scissors with a little cup on the side, and we'd go through and put out the fires. And then she said, Matt, after a long party, sometimes all I do is go, <laughs> and she let me learn how to do that, too. And that was awesome for a kid. So she taught me how to quench fire. Paul was saying, don't do that with your spiritual life. Don't go through your life stopping what God has started. Instead, he would say to Timothy, learn to fan into flame the gift that is within you. They were in the practice of this church at this point of snuffing out what God wanted to do to stop the positive work that the Spirit wanted to do in and through that church. We're to quench not the Spirit. We're to learn to repent of that. There's also this common language in, in Scripture, like in Ephesians 4, it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. One of the secrets to our prayer life is to learn how not to grieve and not quench the Spirit of God. To quench the Spirit of God is to leave undone the thing God has called us to do. To snuff out God's vitality and life in our midst. And to grieve the Spirit to do those things He would not have us to do. Those things that don't line up with his heart or his will or his desires, uh, less than who we are kind of stuff. I love the language of the old book of common prayer when it comes to this, this life of repentance. Penitential order number one, it says this, Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against thee in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. May God search our hearts and show us those things that we have done and those things we have left undone as we live in this world and repent. And here's the final one. We can request. Paul prays, may the God of peace sanctify you completely. And then very humbly he says, brothers, pray for us. You see, he was praying for them, and he wanted them to pray for him because he knew that prayer mattered. In some odd, wonderful way, prayer mattered. That God responded to it. That there were things that happened in the earth that only happened in response to believing prayer. Michael Green, he wrote this a number of years ago. He said, in some mysterious way, the help given by the Spirit of Jesus is linked with humble human prayer. We must be aware of Christian rationalism. Never get to the point where we think that prayer doesn't matter before God because God has called his people to pray. In some mysterious, wonderful way, God has elected to work through humble human prayers. 
And I'm afraid that what has happened is we've placed Jesus up on a felt board and we've figured out all the things that we're going to allow him to do. And we have lost that humble audacity that comes before God asking him to do great and wonderful things that we know not. We've got to push that out of our heart and be people who are, who are humble enough to lose some of the sophistication that says we've got it all figured out and boldly approach the throne of grace. One of the people that I looked up to for a number of years before his death was, was Calvin Miller. He was quite a dude, wasn't he? Interesting guy. Once, you remember when Oral Roberts had the vision of like the 900-foot Jesus? You remember that thing? It made it in all the newspapers. Well, Calvin was, was scheduled to speak on the campus of ORU the, the day that happened. So that's a little bit of an awkward way to come into a room. Uh, and this is, this is his testimony about that. He says, I was speaking in chapel that day, and so I felt some necessity of referring to the vision since it was so much on everyone's mind. I was there to speak on the inner life of Christ, so I opened my sermon by saying, your chancellor has had a vision of a Christ of 300 meters. It didn't sound so overwhelming in the metric system. He said, but I would like to invite your attention to the thumbnail Christ of Teresa of Avila who sits on the throne of the believing heart demanding your allegiance. I went on from there to talk about the Christ of obedience and mystery. He said, while I thought Oral's view of Jesus was a bit titanic, I felt that most people I knew were suffering from absolutely no vision of Jesus. We have so domesticated our Lord that he is capable of little more than going to Sunday school. We sing and preach about him, but he is really too much like us to help us. There is too little power left in the church broken Jesus to terrify us. He's never outlandish. He's a drowsy Messiah indeed. Have you come to the point in your life where you're worshiping a church-broken, domesticated Jesus? He's not the God of the Bible. He's a God of wonder. And in humble, human ways, he delights in us asking him for him to do wonderful, powerful things. You say, Matt, miracles cause me to have a lot of trouble. Yeah, me too. I both believe in them and they baffle me. Why this one, not that one? I was recently reading in the book of Acts. I, I came to the, to the 12th chapter and there you have James, Peter, James, John. James is killed. James is met with the sword. Peter's in prison and angels show up and, and, and he's brought out of prison. He said, Tell James, the other James. You know, you have a couple of James in the New Testament. It freaks you out. Several Johns. You got two Matts on staff here. You're so confused all the time. I mean, there's good-looking Matt and funny-looking Matt. No, those are judgment calls. We don't have time for a beauty contest. There's gray-headed Matt, balding Matt, you know, Matt the lesser, Matt the young, whatever. Well, there's all that stuff in James and John. And, and so you had, you had one of the Jameses. He's met with the sword. And angels show up and break Peter out of prison. 
You say, Matt, that causes me trouble. It causes me trouble too. But what we're left with, y'all, because we've domesticated Jesus is only the sword and not the angels. We may satisfy ourselves intellectually, but we're depriving ourselves of the wonders that come as humble human people approach God and ask God to be God. We can rejoice and we can repent. And by God, we need to request because he wants us to and we need to. So let's get after it. God, we thank you for being who you are and we thank you for calling us to yourself. And Lord, as we stand and sing in this room today, my prayer is that we collectively would would bring our hearts before you and, and Lord say, cleanse us of those things we have left undone for quenching your spirit in our midst. Lord, we, we pray that we would confess those things that we have done that are against your character and your nature and your will. Give us, Lord, individually and collectively a deep hunger for yourself, a hunger that is only satisfied in the spirit of Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would give us the help of the spirit of Jesus. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who would make a, a, a private decision known publicly. I pray as we sing that they would do that today for your glory and for their good. God, we love you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Please stand and respond as God would have you come. David.